Let's pray as we stand. Lord Jesus, uh, you are our king. Uh, you are the one uh, who owns us, who has rescued us, who has welcomed us into your kingdom. And we pray now that as you speak to us from your throne, through your word, uh, you would pour your spirit out to enable us to hear, uh, to receive with joy and obedience, with glad and willing hearts, all that you have to say. Our only hope is in you. So bless us, we pray, out of the abundance of your grace. Amen. Well, please do sit down. Uh, let me welcome you again. Uh, my name's John T. Rhodes. I'm the minister here at Christchurch uh, Central. Uh, it's good to have you with us. And as ever, particularly if you're here for the first time or uh, just been once or twice before, I hope you feel really at home. Um, we're a relatively new church, uh, so there's lots of new people most weeks, uh, which has been very exciting. Uh, and I hope you find uh, a family among us soon. Uh, one of our habits is to preach through books of the Bible to make sure that it is God's word setting the agenda, um, not just whoever's preaching week by week. And at the moment, we're, we're looking at the book of Exodus. Uh, we've come to the Ten Commandments, and we're going to slow down over the next few weeks and take a commandment at a time. Um, today, we're looking at the first commandment. Uh, the first commandment is very short. So I'm going to read it to you, and then I want to take us to another passage in the New Testament. Uh, which will help guide us this morning too. So first of all, from Exodus 20, I'm going to read the first three verses. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Children, there's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Uh, that commandment was given at Mount Sinai. God's people gathered, the cloud descended, and God spoke. So the Ten Commandments are marked out from the other laws given. Uh, those kind of laws that you read in the rest of the book of Exodus about what clothes you should wear or how you should cook a goat and all these sort of things that seem so strange to us. Uh, those other laws were given to Moses, who wrote them down. But the Ten Commandments were spoken. So there's a mountain, a cloud, and God speaking. Come with me, please. Uh, to the New Testament, uh, to Mark chapter 9. It's page 844 of the Church Bibles. Page 844, Mark chapter 9. And we're in the days of the ministry of Jesus. Mark chapter 9 and verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them not to tell, uh, to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
Uh, a few years ago, I heard the story. I desperately tried to find it this last week, but I couldn't find it again. But it was a story uh, of a professor uh, who taught theology. Uh, and very early on in his marriage, uh, his wife was paralyzed. Uh, the professor had great dreams, or had had great dreams, of where his career might take him. He'd got, had plans to travel abroad and do mission work. But because of his wife's um, illness and paralysis, uh, all those dreams had to be put uh, to one side. He could never take a promotion. Uh, he could never go up the ranks of academia. Uh, he had to settle in the same entry-level job uh, that he began in order to be able to give the time, uh, the hours upon hours, day after day, caring for his wife. Uh, she was all but helpless. She needed him to clothe her, to feed her, to bathe her. Uh, he could leave her just about long enough to scurry in, give a lecture, and then run home and care for her again. She became anxious if he was away. And so he never had holidays. He could never disappear with friends to uh, a sports game or a day out. And as he came to his retirement, uh, there was a celebration for him. And one of the students said to him, uh, Professor, it's amazing to see your life. It's amazing to see what you've had to do all these years. And what was so striking was his reply. And there's audio of this somewhere, and I just cannot find it. His reply was this. Uh, he smiled at the student and said, you, you misunderstand. It's not that I have to, but that I get to. Isn't that wonderful? And there's a husband for you. It's not that I have to pour myself out for my wife, but that I get to. Now that is, that is an attitude to bring into marriage uh, without compare. That is certainly uh, what should be the, 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 the cry of all our hearts. But it is the same attitude that we're meant to bring to the law of God, bring to the Ten Commandments. It's very easy to hear the commandments and hear them, if you like, as these two great tablets of stone coming out of heaven to slowly crush you under their weight. It was sort of Mark Twain who had a dream about a, a giant Bible coming down and just, just burying him. All these rules, this weightiness, it's showing me how far short of who I'm meant to be I've become. It's showing me my sin, and it is just crushing. So the thought of 10 weeks of this is perhaps somewhat terrifying. We're actually going to have a break after three weeks, just to let you know. But either way. But actually, the laws, as we tried to see last week, the law of God, these 10 commandments, they are a gift. It's not just that we have to obey, although, of course, we have to obey. God is our Lord, and so it's right that we do what he says, not in order to save ourselves, Again, as we saw last week, God has already saved his people. This is the path he wants them to walk in. But still, we, we obey because he is our Lord. Uh, not to rescue ourselves, but to live out our calling as his children. But again, it's not just that we have to, but that we get to. This way of life that God describes and commands it is not because he wants to enslave us again, but rather because this is the way of freedom. Remember the story of Exodus. God has taken his people from slaving for Pharaoh, building these cities for him, never having any time off, never being fed properly. 
He hasn't brought them out of slavery just to re-enslave them to another master. It's, it's very easy to approach Exodus like that, isn't it? As if the whole story is about one really mighty king, God, conquering a lesser king, Pharaoh, nicking all his slaves and making them his slaves instead. But not at all. This is freedom. Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2. I'm the Lord your God who's rescued you out of evil, who's taken you out of slavery. So the law cannot be a new slavery. This way of life is not a slave way of life. So tempting to think like that, isn't it? That obedience to Jesus, to live the way that God has called me to do, is a burden and, and chains around my ankles. But far from it, because God has set us free, he has given us this, this beautiful way to live. And so really, pretty simply this morning, I, I want to think about the law in, in, in two ways. I want to think about it, what it means to have only one Lord. You shall have no other gods before me. God is Lord. And that, if you like, is the have to of the law. But then secondly, I want to think about what it means to have only one saviour. God is saviour. And that is the, the get to. We get to live like this. I'll say more on that in a moment. Uh, let's start, though, uh, with the lordship of Christ. You must only have one Lord. Uh, the first commandment is clearly at the, the top of the ten for a reason. It is set in the terms for everything that goes on. You will have no other gods before me. Nothing can rank above me in your life, God is saying. In other words, I am your king. I am your Lord. He is speaking from a throne. Now, we read wonderful things about Jesus calling us brothers and sisters, about being our friend in the gospel. Jesus says, you know, I've come and now I am your friend. Now you call me a friend. And that is all true. But he is still a king. He is still a king. That's what it means to be Messiah. To be Messiah meant to be anointed, to have oil poured on your head. It was a picture of being a king amongst other things. I once heard a a preacher tell the story of um, two boys doing a jigsaw and they didn't know what what the picture was. I didn't have the box or whatever, so they slowly started putting it together. And eventually it became clear that in the center of the picture was this kind of medieval king sat on a throne. And the preacher said, that's what our lives are meant to be like. We're meant to realize, and sometimes it takes a long time as we put the pieces in, in, in place, but we're meant to realize that our lives have God as king at the center. When I wake up in the morning, my, my question isn't what shall I do today, but how can I serve you today? When I wake up in the morning, my desire is not simply to please my own needs, but ought to be, Lord Jesus, Father God, Holy Spirit, how may I glorify you today? Of course, for us, we've seen much more than the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And that's why we read this transfiguration passage, the passage in Mark's gospel. Did, did, did you pick up some of the similarities as I read it? Uh, children, picture the scene. Okay, see if you can imagine the scene back in Exodus 20 at the giving of the Ten Commandments. What would we see if we looked down or if you're making a film of it? Uh, You'd see a mountain, wouldn't you? Mount Sinai. Uh, You'd see a cloud at the top of the mountain. Uh, You'd see Moses going up the mountain. Moses keeps getting called up the mountain. And you would hear in the cloud, you would hear the voice of God. Uh, telling you that he is the Lord your God, that we should listen to his voice, and then giving us the commandments. Well, what do we read in the the story of the transfiguration? Again, we get a mountain. 
Uh, Peter, James and John, verse 2, go up a high mountain by themselves uh, with Jesus. Uh, Verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them again. It's the same cloud. God appears often in the Bible in this kind of glory cloud, kind of Shekinah as it's called in the Old Testament. It is symbolic of his presence. And what do we hear? Well, we hear another voice, verse 7, coming out of the cloud. And lo and behold, Moses is up there again. Moses has long died, gone to heaven, but he's back down, all to help paint this picture of Sinai. But this time, what does the voice say? The voice doesn't just reissue the Ten Commandments, but rather the voice says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The spotlight is on Jesus. The first commandment tells us we are meant to be 100% loyal to Christ. As if a giant finger has come out of heaven, pointed at Jesus. He's, he's, he's turned kind of brilliant white. And the voice says, this one, this is the one to listen to. Greater than Elijah the prophet, greater than Moses the lawgiver. Jesus, my son. So certainly we're not to look to any other gods. Uh, we're brought up, aren't we? Uh, being told that actually they're, all religions are ultimately the same. I remember in Derby, uh, one, one, um, a little boy in the congregation uh, coming home one, one um, day, not my son, but coming home to his dad. His dad showed me the stuff afterwards. Uh, and they, they'd done this sort of project at school. And the whole point of the project was, aren't all religions the same, ultimately? Uh, look how they all have special books. Christians have the Bible. Uh, Muslims have the Quran. Hindus have the Bhagavad Gita and on we go through different religions. They've all got a special book. They've all got a sign. Christians have the cross and Muslims have the crescent and on we go. Uh, They all have their special day. Muslims meet to pray on a Friday, Jews on a Saturday, Christians on a Sunday. Uh, On and on it went. You could fill in everything else. And the whole point was, ultimately, they're all the same. And so we're told it would be really arrogant and it's tremendously arrogant, for example, for, of Christians to say that there is only one way to God through Jesus. Uh, through Jesus coming, dying, and living for us. Sometimes uh, it's, it's putting out that story of the elephant. And the story of the elephant, the story goes that um, a king uh, was given an elephant, but no one had seen an elephant before. Uh, and so he blindfolded five of his wise men and told them all to come and, and sort of touch this thing. And tell him what it was. So one gets hold of the tongue, the, the, sorry, the tongue, that'd be bad, isn't it? Uh, the trunk, and says, well, you know, an elephant, uh, my lord and king, it's sort of, it's long and bendy and strong. Another one gets hold of a leg and says, well, it's, no, an elephant is a mighty pillar. Another one get hold of an, gets hold of an ear and says, no, an elephant is like a mighty, it's a fan to keep you cool. Another one gets hold of the tail and says, no, it's a string, a rope to bind your enemies. And so the story goes, the king then tells them to take off their blindfolds and says to them, though you are wise men, you only see part of the truth. And the point of the story is, it's arrogant it, 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 for any one religion to claim they have the whole truth. We're all like blind men who've got part of the truth, but not the whole truth. And so you mustn't claim exclusivity. You'll know that if you, if you ever try to speak to people about, about the gospel and you'll get the response, well, that, that's great for you, but it's not for me. Or you mustn't insist that's what we all believe. You've got to let Hindus and Sikhs and atheists and Muslims and Jews and all have their own way. Many paths up the mountain. And it would be arrogant to claim otherwise. Of course, as many people have pointed out, that story itself is self-defeating because actually it's an incredibly arrogant story. It takes that the storyteller 
to be absolutely sure that he can see the whole truth in order for the story to work. In other words, the storyteller is saying, well, all those silly little religions, they're like people who've got a little bit of an elephant. But I, usually the wise atheist or the wise, wise secularist, I can see all things and I know you've only got part of the truth. That is just as arrogant a claim as any one of the religions claiming they've got the truth. Jesus is perfectly clear. I am the way, the truth, and life. There is no other way. If you're here this morning and exploring the Christian faith, God desires to forgive you, desires to know you, desires to welcome you into the halls of heaven. But there is only one gate. In fact, that's another of Jesus saying, I am the gate. He says, I am the gate. You come through me. By rights, you don't deserve to come in. We, we're all sinners. We, we don't have a pass to get in. Our sin should leave us excluded and cast into the depths of hell. But I have come in your place, lived as you should have lived, died as you should have died on the cross. And therefore, if you come through me, then for free, I will welcome you. Don't try and approach God any other way. He's burningly pure, terrifyingly pure. But come in Jesus' name and he will welcome you. Christian, don't start thinking that there are perhaps other ways for your friends, your family to get home. And we start thinking that there might be a back door, a different route, that it can just pour water on the kind of uh, the flames of evangelistic uh, eagerness. So often we see this, again, many of you are young, so often we see this, or I've seen it at least over the years, with parents looking down at their children and, and say, well, you know, he seems to have some sort of a faith. It might not be in Jesus, but, it, but no, there is only one way. And we need to urge that one way on all our friends, all our family. But even once we are Christians, that commandment remains, doesn't it? We shall have no other gods, or we should have no other gods before the Lord Jesus. And yet if you're at all honest, if you know your heart, you know in, in Calvin's word, your heart is an idle factory. It's a great phrase. Our hearts are idle factories. I don't... You know, I don't feel, if I'm absolutely honest, any desire to go and worship in the mosque on Friday or the synagogue on Saturday. It just doesn't tempt me. But, but those other gods, those other gods are not really my problem. I don't need someone to come at me with a, a statue or another holy book. My heart is quite capable of creating its own idols, its other lords. What Calvin is getting at is that uh, that although we profess with our lips that Lord Jesus is our Saviour and Lord, day to day, other things drive us. So how would you finish some of these sentences? Uh, what I live for is... Dot, dot, dot. What consumes my thoughts, what I think about most is... So I want to be, what do you spend your time measuring? What do you mean? And so if you look at what you measure, that is a, often a clue as to the kind of idols that have snuck into your hearts. And so if you're spending all your time measuring your weight, it may be that your body image has become too important to you. You spend all your time checking your social media accounts to, to measure how many friends you've got or follows you've got or likes you've got. And perhaps popularity has become an idol to you. You measure your bank account all the time, checking kind of how much is, is flowing in each month. And perhaps money has become your idol. Even more basically, the one thing that would make me really happy is if we're honest, many of us would finish that sentence with 
What would make me happy is a relationship, a promotion, a bigger house, better health, more children, more obedient children, more money, whatever it may be. It is often what we pour out our lives for, what we sacrifice for, sacrifice particularly our time and our money. That shows what we live for. It's not that we've outwardly denied Jesus and said, I'm turning my back and leaving you. It's just that functionally, day to day, someone else is on the throne of our hearts. Children, if you imagine that your, your heart has a little throne, Jesus is meant to be sat there. And yet so often we allow him in the room. He's one of the many people we'll consult, but he's not Lord. An idol is anything you fear or love or trust above Jesus. And very likely, for most people in this room, I suspect, that thing will be a good thing. Okay, it's very possible to make good things ultimate things. Very old line that good things become God things. And Martin Luther, I think, is really insightful here. Martin Luther, the great churchman of the early 16th century, he said that you only ever break commandments 2 through 10 because you've already broken commandment number 1. Do you see what he's saying? You only break all the rest of the commandments because you've already broken the first one. So why do I lie? In the ninth one, why do I lie? I lie because my image is more important to me than honouring Jesus by telling the truth. What, what someone thinks of me is more important than honouring Jesus and speaking truthfully. So, so when someone says to me, um, uh, why are you not there or why are you late? I don't want them to think it's, I don't want them to think bad of me. So I say, oh, traffic was awful. Although actually it's because I left late. So even in small things, it is because I've already enshrined on the throne of my heart my desire to be popular or well-respected that I then break the ninth commandment. Uh, why do I lust? Why is pornography such a snare for so many people? Well, because I'm not satisfied with what God has given me. I'm not satisfied with him. I want the immediate pleasure and rush that sex can bring. I fear the lack of exhilaration that I'll, you know, that I'll miss out on if I restrain myself. I love it, pornography, self-satisfaction, more than him. God wants exclusive, overall lordship. Of course, that doesn't mean that we don't also love our families, we don't work hard in our careers. It's not wrong to put money in your bank account and buy houses and all the rest. But the point is, is it all done in service of him? Uh, can I bring the different elements of my life, my family, my work, my career, my hobbies, my, can I honestly bring them to Jesus, bring them into the temple as it were, and thank them for him without being embarrassed or ashamed of them? Do I understand they've all come from his right hand? That all of them, in fact, are just pictures of his greatness. He is greater than all those things. We all fall far short and we desperately need mercy. And that brings us to our second and our final point. The commandment tells us not just that we should only have one Lord, that we have to obey and put him on the throne, but also that we should only have one saviour. And because we only have one saviour, we get to obey. That introduction again to the commandments. So important we remember the introduction every time we come to one of the, the rules as it were. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I saved you 
by grace alone. I've done it all by my own efforts. Chapter 19, the one that precedes the Ten Commandments. I've, I've carried you on eagle's wings. I've done it all, purely out of love. So why would you go anywhere else? It would be madness to take another God before me. Other gods are going to be less good for you than me. Why would you go anywhere else for salvation and for blessing? Because I've saved you and blessed you graciously for free out of love. I'm the one who's conquered the most powerful forces on earth in your day, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Nothing can hold a candle to me. Nothing can save you like I can. Nothing can bless you like I can. So don't wander away from me. Do you see the tone? It is, it is a don't. It is a command. But it's a command like laying a table full of a, 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 just an enormous dinner before you and saying you must eat to a starving man. Well, it is a command. But it's not that sort of command. It's not a burdensome command. Uh, it's like a, a married man being told on his wedding day, tonight you must sleep with your wife. There, there is a command there. But not a burdensome one. A, a, a wife saying to her husband, you must be loyal to me. I will be your wife. If you are married, then, then on your wedding day, it doesn't cross your mind not to be loyal. You want to be. Yes, you're making binding promises. Yes, you're under the, the law, if you like, of now I must be faithful to life. But I want to be. It is a blessing. It is not chains. And again, of course, the world comes to us and says, no, blessing and salvation are found in other places other than Yahweh, other than in Jesus. Think of the Israelites. Quickly they turned to, to literally made idols, didn't they? Uh, whilst Moses is up the mountain getting some of these laws, uh, the Israelites make a, a golden calf. We'll look at that story next week, actually. Well, why a golden calf? Well, in part because it's visible, it's near. It seems more real. Yahweh, I can't see. It's, it's just about words and hearing. For us now, uh, you, you can't see Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can't see God the Father. You have to trust his word that he is the one who blesses, the one who saves. That one day, when he returns and transforms the earth, he will rescue you, purify you, glorify you, and bring you into that kingdom. You cannot see those things. You can't see him on a throne. And therefore, other gods come to you and seem like they can bless you much more. They seem more real, more near. So I decide that I will compromise my loyalty to Jesus and rather... Uh, obey some sort of earthly authority or live for a human being. Perhaps it's in the realm of marriage, student group, we looked at this on, on Thursday. It's very clear that Christians are called to marry those who also belong to Jesus. Christians marry Christians. Again, it's not a kind of because we're better than you thing. It's about this loyalty to, to Jesus. If he is king and I marry someone who doesn't think Jesus is king, well, then my heart is going to be divided. And yet so often we do do that. Why? Because the blessing of having a, a romantic partner seems more real, more near than Jesus who can at times seem distant. Sometimes we think other gods will bring pleasures that God cannot provide. God is austere and distant. But the gods of sex and money bring pleasure. It was all the same in Israel's day. When you went to a shrine of one of these other gods, very often they were shrine prostitutes. And you would sleep with a prostitute in order to, to be blessed by that god. 
That's a more fun religion, a more pleasurable religion. Also, the lie goes. Where are you looking, in other words, for salvation and blessing? What for you holds the key, or who holds the key to life, happiness, and blessing? The devil wants to put on a thousand masks, come to you in a thousand different guises with a thousand different idols, and say anything other than Jesus. But actually, this wholehearted loyalty to God is blessing for us. The incredible good news of the gospel is that in Christ, we can draw near. We can come to him in safety. Because he has forgiven us in Jesus. He wants to welcome us home. And he wants to empower us to live this life of obedience, which is a life of fruitfulness and joy. The third commandment, in other words, is an invitation as well as a command. So to give yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus is not to miss out. I know there are earthly costs. Jesus is very clear about that, that following him will involve suffering at some level. Some people are in prison today because they have kept Jesus on the throne and not compromised. But ultimately, we have to say they are not missing out. In the short term, there may be cost, but ultimately there is nothing but blessing. When Jesus comes uh, to earth, God the Son takes on flesh. He picks up this I am language. Remember in in Exodus, God has introduced himself as I am who I am. And seven times in in John's gospel, sorry, Jesus says, I am, and then he goes on. So I am the bread of life. Come to me and you have all that you need for life, for flourishing, for satisfaction. All these other pleasures, all these other joys that you crave after, who do you think made them? They were pale reflections of my glory. Come to me for bread, for life. I'm the light of the world. All these other ways of understanding, all these other teachings that say, no, go down my path. No, I am the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who can direct you through life. You may have to survive without a spouse or a partner. You may have to suffer the scorn of friends or family, but with me as your shepherd and guide, you are safe. I am the resurrection and the life. Only I can give you an answer to death. Only I can unlock the grave. On we might go. This commandment, in other words, this first commandment, sure is a have to. You really must not live for anything but Jesus. But it is a get to as well. When Jesus died and rose, he then poured his spirit on his people to enable us to begin to live for him. And so we should be asking uh, each day, really, for the, for the double gift. Oh, we sang about it last week, I think. The hymn Rock of Ages. Be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt. So yes, we need forgiveness. We break this commandment all the time. My heart is still an idol factory. Forgive me, Lord. And he promises that when we confess, he will forgive. But cleanse me from its guilt and power. Jesus has also given you his spirit so that slowly, imperfectly, you are able to live more wholeheartedly for him. You have been transformed. I know it doesn't feel like that much of the time. But again, you have to listen to God's word. You are united with Christ. You are full of the spirit. So live like it. He's given us Lord and Saviour. And as both, he is far greater than life itself. And that frees me up, therefore, to live for him sacrificially. I can give him alone my worship. 
Him alone, my thanks. My money can be poured out in his service, my time in his service. Because as, as I do so, I'm losing nothing. He doesn't need anything from me. He's not trying to exploit me or take from me. Gods of the Old Testament always wanted something from you. Ancient religions wanted something from you. You needed to feed the gods. They needed you. So too, everything earthly wants to take from you. Give your loyalty to the company. Give your love to me. Give us your money. Whatever it may be, it wants to take from you. God wants to bless. And so the more we give ourselves in obedience to him, actually, the more we're blessed. It's not just that we have to, but that we get to. Let's pray that he works that into our lives. Our Father in heaven, our, our hearts are idle factories. We don't even begin to see the number of rivals we put on the throne of our hearts. We don't shudder in horror as we should. We don't see the dishonor we're doing to Christ. We pray, therefore, that you would be of us in that double cure. Cleanse us from its guilt and its power. Thank you that you've set us free to serve. And we prayed so much that you would grow our faith that Jesus is sufficient, that he is the only Lord and the only Savior we need, that all blessing, all joy, all happiness ultimately is found in him. And throne him in our hearts, we pray. In his own name. Amen.